Donald Trump, Donald Trump describing his conversations with Georgia election officials as perfect calls. The lead starts right now. Parts of a grand jury report were just released. What do they reveal? What do they not reveal about the actions of Trump and others when Trump pressured Georgia election officials to overturn the 2020 results? And face-to-face with a killer, a professor describing his encounter with Michigan State University gunman and the quick thinking that may have saved lives, plus a major recall of Tesla cars, the problem discovered with a high-tech self-driving feature and what you need to do if you happen to own one of these vehicles. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead, President Biden, finally publicly speaking this afternoon about the unidentified object shot out of the sky by the U.S. military over the weekend. President Biden says nothing suggests these objects are related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance objects from any other country. But we should note the U.S. has not yet been able to recover any of the debris from the three objects shut down over the weekend because of remote locations and severe weather. President Biden also said he hopes to speak with Chinese President Xi Jinping soon. Although we should also note attempts by top U.S. officials to speak to their Chinese counterparts have been rebuffed. In recent days. Let's get straight to CNN's Phil Mattingly, our chief White House correspondent. Phil, President Biden just announced his team is working on developing new protocols to help them decide which objects to shoot down. Yeah, Jake, the the president's remarks underscore just how much of a scramble it's been to some degree behind the scenes for U.S. officials over the course of the last several days after the unprecedented three days straight of shooting down three unidentified objects over U.S. airspace for the first time in history. And it's really kind of highlighted the fact a lot more needs to be done behind the scenes and the president detailing on several levels what that will be the road ahead. Take a listen. Make no mistake. If any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. I'll be sharing with Congress these classified policy parameters when they are completed and uh, they'll remain classified so we don't give our roadmap to our enemies to try to evade our defenses. Jake, those parameters being drafted by an interagency team led by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Sullivan also leading a group that's helping detail another four processes the president is putting into place, including updating inventories, working across Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, across the world for global norms, really underscoring that this was a very new problem, one that had obviously been out there but hadn't been grappled with to a significant degree across the government and now very much so is. And what do we know, Phil, about President Biden's plans to speak with Xi Jinping? Look, Jake, to be honest, we know what the president said and not much more than that. But it does kind of get to the fact that over the course of the last several days, really the course of the last two weeks since that spy balloon was shot down, the president has tried to strike a very careful balance, made clear that in any incursion over U.S. uh, territory, there will be action. And that was what happened once it reached the balloon reached water. But that he did not uh, think it was going to damage relations with China, that there would be no long-term effects. And that seemed to be the message the president was sending today. One thing to keep an eye on, Secretary of State Antony Blinken on his way to Munich for security conference. His Chinese counterpart will be there, officials saying there may be a possibility of meeting there, Jake. If the Chinese agree to it. Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our politics lead, a Georgia grand jury has unanimously concluded there was no widespread voter fraud in the state during the 2020 election. The group rejected Donald Trump's conspiracy theories after hearing testimony from election officials, from poll workers, and from state officials during seven months of investigation. This information was included in the grand jury's final report, portions of which 
were released today, and as Sarah Murray reports for us now, the grand jury also recommended that the Fulton County District Attorney in Atlanta consider indicting some of the witnesses for perjury. Some witnesses may have lied to a special grand jury in Georgia, the panel says, recommending the district attorney consider indictments. This is basically the grand jury saying, go get them, Madam District Attorney. The special grand jury, which spent months digging into efforts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election in the Peach State, concluding perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. The grand jury recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. This after the special grand jury heard from 75 witnesses, including high-profile names like Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani. They asked the questions and we'll see. And South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who's standing by his testimony. Are you confident in your testimony? Yes. The grand jury also heard from technical experts, poll workers, and investigators, concluding, we find by a unanimous vote that no widespread fraud took place in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that could result in overturning that election, adding that they heard from witnesses still claiming that such fraud took place. Because Georgia special grand juries don't issue indictments, their final report is a vehicle to recommend whether anyone should face criminal charges. The judge overseeing the grand jury ordered sections of the report released Thursday, but held back the panel's conclusions on criminal charges after Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis argued against the report's release. We think for future defendants to be treated fairly, it's not appropriate at this time to have this report released saying last month she would soon make decisions on whether to seek indictments from a regular grand jury. Decisions are imminent. The Georgia probe got underway soon after Trump phoned Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in January 2021, pressing him to find the votes for Trump to win Georgia. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. Since the call, the investigation expanded to include the fake elector scheme, false election fraud claims before state lawmakers, and efforts by unauthorized individuals to access voting machines in one Georgia county. Now, in a statement today, a Trump spokesperson said the sections released today don't even mention Donald Trump's name. That's because he did nothing wrong. In reality, the sections released today don't mention anyone's names because the judge said it's premature to name anyone because they haven't faced charges yet. Ultimately, it's going to be up to Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to decide if she is going to bring charges against former President Donald Trump or any of his allies. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. You'll remember Donald Trump is facing more than just that investigation in Georgia today. Trump's former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien appeared at a federal courthouse here in Washington, D.C. There, multiple grand juries are investigating Trump for January 6th and also for improperly holding classified documents. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. Paula, what do we know about O'Brien's testimony today? Well, Dick, we know that he was subpoenaed in both investigations, both the January 6th investigation as well as the classified document probe. And he could really be an incredibly valuable witness because, of course, he was in the administration on January 6th. He considered resigning but didn't. So he could provide a lot of details about what was going on in the administration during that time. And as a national security advisor, he should have been involved in the handling of classified materials and could have some insight into how those documents ended up at Mar-a-Lago. But there is expected to be a privilege fight here. Former president's attorneys have told me that they intend to invoke privilege here. He has raised it uh, previously. So it's unlikely the prosecutors got all the answers that they wanted today, and we should potentially expect some litigation here. 
And he, he participated with the January 6th investigation, I believe, Robert O'Brien. To an extent, yes. Yeah, to an extent. You also have some new reporting about a different investigation, the one into Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. That's right. The other special counsel, we've learned that the FBI has conducted two previously undisclosed searches at the University of Delaware. Now, that's significant because, of course, Biden donated a lot of papers from his time in the Senate to the university. He has an archive there. And we've learned that these were two different searches, two different locations at the university. One search did occur at that Senate archive, another one at a different location on the university where he has shipped some papers to be stored in recent years. And we've learned from our sources that these were conducted with a full cooperation and consent of his legal team. The FBI did retrieve some documents, but Jake, they did not appear to have classified markings. And the FBI is currently reviewing those. But there are a lot of questions about why the White House, why the president's legal team has been so selectively transparent and why they just didn't come out and reveal this search when they have provided details about others. This search, in addition to, of course, the whole investigation, right, have only come out through media reports. Interesting. Okay, Paula Reed, thank you so much for keeping us up to speed on all the investigations. Let's discuss uh, with former Assistant U.S. Attorney Ellie Honig and former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General under George W. Bush, Tom Dupree. Ellie, let me start with you. Uh, and let's start with what we learned from Georgia today, the grand jury recommending indictments against one or more witnesses whom they think lied. Does that mean you think that we'll definitely see charges? Well, Jake, I think things are absolutely trending that way, both with respect to potential perjury charges and with election fraud related charges. And I see a couple of important things in today's partial report, which, by the way, is a reflection of the prosecutor's evidence and a one sided process. First of all, the report says that the grand jury finds specifically that there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud. That is a finding that would be consistent with a criminal charge under Georgia law for election interference and inconsistent with no charges. And second of all, the overall tenor of this document that we saw today shows that the grand jury believes they witnessed serious wrongdoing. That is the tone. It's unmistakable in this report. But Jake, anytime we talk about the possibility of an indictment here out of the Georgia Fulton County DA of Donald Trump, I think we have to note that it is a big difference between indictment and conviction. And if we do see an indictment, I think there's going to be some serious legal and practical obstacles. there. And, and Tom, the, we're told that the Fulton County District Attorney is still considering charging Donald Trump. Do you think Trump has a constitutional basis to challenge an indictment if he does, in fact, face one? Some legal experts have argued that an elected local prosecutor simply cannot bring charges against a former president of the United States. Yeah, Jake, I'm not sure I see that line of defense. I can certainly see other lines of defense that the former president could deploy here. And look, one thing to keep in mind is if and when uh, the DA actually brings indictments, and she said that these indictments are imminent, and I am convinced that there will be indictments, either for perjury or for other crimes, they don't all have to come at once. In other words, I could see a scenario in which she indicts a number of officials, maybe or players, maybe some you know lower level folks in the scheme, and then gradually works her way up. So although we will see indictments, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is potentially just round one of what may ultimately be a larger group of people who are criminally charged in connection with the election. Ellie, we have so many investigations to talk about. Let's turn to special counsel Jack Smith's multiple investigations into Donald Trump. Sources expect former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows to challenge his subpoena on the grounds of executive privilege. Former Vice President Mike Pence has already said he's going to challenge the subpoena as well, although I think different grounds. Does Jack Smith have time to wait for all these legal challenges to play out? That's exactly the question here, Jake. Look, we have seen more action in the last month or two under Jack Smith than we did under during the prior year and a half 
under Merrick Garland. And the result of that now is Jack Smith is pursuing this high-level testimony from these well-placed witnesses. The problem is they're all going to challenge them, and these challenges have some legitimacy to them. They will take many months, minimum four or five months, to get through the federal courts. And the question is, does Jack Smith have the luxury of that time? Is it worth him for him to spend that time in order to get this testimony? And Tom, does time play a role when it comes to Attorney General Merrick Garland's decision, decision-making process? I ask because every day that passes gets us closer and closer to the 2024 presidential primaries and then the November 2024 presidential election, where obviously Donald Trump is going to be a major force, if not the nominee. Yeah, look, Merrick Garland has to be keeping an eye on the clock here, Jake. There's no question that he is exquisitely sensitive to that exact risk. In other words, the closer we get to the election, the closer we get to potential charges being brought either against former President Trump or other people who will be candidates themselves in the 2024 election. It makes it all that more difficult to charge. And at some point, you kind of cross the Rubicon where they simply can't charge that close to an election. So I think Merrick Garland is going to be kind of, you know, prodding uh, Jack Smith to move with all deliberate speed here. And look, he's got, they got to have to fight these privilege battles. It's going to be legal trench warfare, I think, for the next few months as we figure out who can testify and who can be deposed and that sort of thing. But they got to keep an eye on that clock because at some point the clock is going to strike midnight and this whole thing turns into a pumpkin. And Ellie, could Jack Smith move forward with one of his investigations while waiting for the other to play out? I mean, he's doing a couple of investigations. For example, could he recommend charges in the January 6th investigation while waiting for the legal challenges to play out in the classified documents investigation. Yeah, so this is a fascinating intersection of the law and politics. I think by the prosecutorial textbook, you handle each case, Mar-a-Lago and January 6th, separately. And when you believe you're done and ready to recommend indictment or no indictment, you bring that forward. But politics matter here. Reality matters here. And it may be more advantageous either for Jack Smith or for Merrick Garland to say, let's wait until we have decisions on both and unveil them both at the same time. Interesting. Ellie Honig, Tom Dupree, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, what the agonizing wait is like for earthquake survivors in Turkey as they see some survivors pulled out of the rubble alive. And Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman is back in the hospital. This time, we're told he's getting treatment for severe depression. And Hollywood superstar Bruce Willis finally gets a clear diagnosis, the alarming health conditions for the huge star that's ahead. In our worldly, the death toll has surpassed 42,000 across Turkey and Syria following last week's devastating 7.8 magnitude earthquake. But 10 days on from the disaster, people are still miraculously being pulled alive from the rubble, defying expectations that too much time has passed. CNN's Jamana Karadja is in Intakia, Turkey, with a look at some of these remarkable stories of survival. Antakya no more, they say. This once bustling historic city now in ruins. It is here where hope meets despair. On every corner, a scene so painful of loss so hard to comprehend. She's waited days for news of her husband, but the wait never prepares her for this. Nothing could have prepared the people of Antakya for these grimmest of days. Misery here so palpable in the air. You lose track of time, so I don't know which day it is. But at this point, I don't think there's anybody left alive. Eileen and her family have been searching for her aunt. Other bodies have come out of the building, hers. You go through all stages of, you know, of, of grief. 
you're angry, you're desperate, you're sad, you accept, then you, you get mad again. At this point, we've come to accept that she's passed away, but we just want to put her at her final resting place because with how it's been going, leaving her here is unimaginable. Around the corner, the rare good news these days. After more than 220 hours under the rubble, a woman and two children were rescued alive. Several bodies have also been recovered from the building. There are others still trapped inside. They don't know if they're alive or dead. They pray they find them alive. Mohammed Bayram just buried his daughter and her husband. His 12- and 14-year-old grandchildren are still inside. God, I beg you, he says. Just like they got that woman and two children out alive, we're hoping for the same. It's been the most agonizing of waits for his and other families here. May the Lord not put anyone through this, this woman says. Mohammed hasn't eaten in 11 days. He says all he can do is hope, pray and wait. We weren't able to get these big machines for a few days, he says. They had to go through other buildings here first. Maybe if they had, they would have come out alive. Another call for quiet during our interview, one of many in the past few days. Rescuers hear something. Cheers break out. They believe they've located two people alive. A tense wait, now into the evening, the crushing sound of silence. It's hardest for those who wonder if they mourn or wait. It is here where hope fades as fast as it grows. And Jake, this building that you're looking at right now, this is a very symbolic building for the people of Hatay province where we are right now. For a brief time in its history, Hatay province was a republic in the 1930s and this was the parliament building. This is the city center, the central square here um, in the city and, and you just see it completely destroyed. This is very much what you see all across this city right now. It's very hard to find a single building that hasn't been impacted by the earthquake. Uh, we just met with members of the Iraqi search and rescue team who are here and I asked them about how you know, this compares to the work that they used to do in Iraq. And the guys were saying that this reminded them of Mosul and the aftermath of major bombings in Iraq. But they were like, this is a catastrophe. Imagine what you were seeing in Iraq, what they were dealing with across a massive earthquake zone. And Jake, just in the past hour, we felt a 5.2 magnitude earthquake here. And you can imagine how terrifying this is for people who are still trying to recover from that massive earthquake just 10 days ago and all the hundreds of aftershocks that have followed. Jumana Karache in Antakya, Turkey. Thank you so much for that report. Coming up, the gripping account from a professor at Michigan State University after the gunman in Monday's attack walked right into his classroom, what that professor did to try to stop the shooter's rampage. Internationally, you're looking at footage of people in El Paso, Texas, running for their lives again. Last night, one person was killed and three were injured in yet another mass shooting in the United States of America. This one was at a mall just steps away from the Walmart where 23 people were murdered just three years ago. Texas police say two men were taken into custody after Wednesday night's shooting. An El Paso resident who lost two family members in the 2019 Walmart shooting tells CNN affiliate 
KFOX, he feels like political leaders are, quote, not accepting the full scope of the situation and, quote, numb to what's going on, unquote. Wednesday is the 72nd mass shooting in the United States in 2023, that one that we just showed you, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Now back to Monday's mass shooting at the Michigan State University campus in East Lansing, where a 43-year-old man senselessly gunned down students, leaving three dead and five others seriously injured. Let's bring in CNN's Miguel Marquez, who's near the MSU campus. And Miguel, CNN is hearing from a professor who was there in the classroom where the shootings took place. Yeah, this is a guy who was teaching a Cuban literature course to 45 students in that classroom on Monday night. You know, police also saying that the shooter, they believe they have a bit of an idea of why he uh, did this, saying that they, in his note, he was upset about being uh, asked to leave or thrown out of several businesses in the area. But it's still unclear why he went to MSU, why he went to this specific class. But this professor gives us a pretty unique look at one of those many, many mass shootings in this country. Here's what happened when that shooter walked into classroom 114 in MSU's Berkey Hall. And it was so horrible because, it, 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 you know, when you see someone who's totally masked, you don't see their face, you don't see their hands, you don't see, it, it's, it was like seeing a robot, it was like seeing something no, not human, standing there. I mean, he shot at least 15 shots, one after the other, one after the other. And at that moment, because I don't recall what I did between his starting to shoot and what I'm going to tell you just now, I just, my intuition told me he's walking down the hall and he's going to enter through the door I'm closest to. So I threw myself at that door and I squatted and I held the door like this, so that my weight would keep it from, and I was putting my foot on the wall and holding like this so that he couldn't open it. All the time aware that he could just shoot the, the door handle and open it. But the only thing I thought I could do was that, at least I'll attempt to stop it. And um, that lasted for about 10 minutes, it was an eternity. What would you do in that situation? I think every American now has to come up with an answer to that. Fear, chaos, confusion. This professor held the door, told other students to escape. Uh, and two of the students who died that night were in his classroom. The five who are still struggling for their lives in the hospital were in that classroom. We're going to have a lot more for you on this at 9 p.m. tonight. All right, Miguel Marquez, thank you. And for more of Miguel's interview with that professor and more about this horror, be sure to tune in to CNN at 9 p.m. Eastern this evening for a special report about the mass shooting at Michigan State University. We are also today learning that the gunman in the Michigan State tragedy once had a weapons charge against him. In 2019, he had been charged with carrying a concealed weapon without a permit. That is a felony. It would have prevented him from ever owning legally another gun. But that case never went to trial. Instead, the suspected gunman pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor possession of a loaded firearm. And that lesser charge allowed him to legally own a gun. Let's bring in Stephen Gutowski. He's the founder of The Reload, a news publication on firearms policy and politics, also a CNN contributor. Thanks for being here, Stephen. Really appreciate it as always. So how common is this where reduced charges 
could have stopped a, a future gunman from possessing a weapon, that, that act of reducing the charges? I don't think it's very common that the act of reducing charges is what leads to a situation like this. Usually you, you hear about these warning signs and nothing is actually done about it that could have prevented uh, the, the assailant from purchasing guns legally. In this situation, obviously, he was arrested and charged with something that is a felony that would result in a lifetime ban. Although in this situation, I would note that it's a nonviolent crime that he was charged with, and it's something that isn't illegal in 25 states, and that progressive prosecutors also have sort of deprioritized, as is clear from this case. As because well. it's not a violent offense. Is that, the, is that right. the thinking there? Yeah, and, you know, we've heard about the permitless carry movement or the constitutional carry movement. That's about eliminating these exact sign, kinds of crimes where there's no sort of criminal intent or violent indication involved. So there is something of a caveat to this one. I, I, you know, there's other things in his past that I think were perhaps more concerning. And we'll get to that in a second. But before that, because you're our firearms expert, I want to go through the litany of firearms that he had just to give us an idea of what damage these weapons could have done. According to Michigan State Police, he had on him two 9mm handguns, legally purchased, not registered, a loaded magazine full to capacity in his shirt pocket, eight loaded magazines, 9mm ammunition in his backpack, roughly 50 rounds of loose 9mm ammunition in a pouch in his backpack. To me, an untrained ear, that sounds like he really wanted to wreak havoc, but you tell me. I think that's accurate because of the situation, right? He's carrying this around on him while he's shooting at innocent people who have no means of defending themselves. Certainly, he clearly wanted to inflict a lot of violence on, uh, on people at MSU. It's not clear why, but, you know, if he had just had that amount of ammunition at home or was going to the oh, range, sure. it's not a big deal. But, right. yeah, when you're carrying around eight loaded magazines and you're shooting at people at random, clearly he wanted to, to continue killing people, it seems, uh, and it's not... We don't know yet why he didn't do that, but obviously inflicted a lot of damage with what he had. So let's talk about the, the item you were talking about earlier. Um, the gunman's father said that his son uh, was, had really let himself go. His teeth were falling out. He stopped cutting his hair. There are other, other signs that he you know, was experiencing some, some real crisis. What steps exist that makes it possible to keep firearms out of the hands of people who are, who are obviously experiencing some sort of mental or emotional health crisis, even if it has not been adjudicated. Uh, the adjudication, I know, makes it easier to, to take a gun away from somebody for fear that they might harm themselves or others. But what if it hasn't been adjudicated? Yeah, then it's much harder, right? I mean, there are red flag laws in some states, although we've seen, obviously, mass shootings that occur in those states as well. Because nobody raised the red flag. People don't. And it doesn't seem the father did anything significant to try and prevent his son from going down that da- downward spiral, at least not to the point that he clearly needed it. Uh, it, it's, it's, it is hard, right? You know, you want a, a community around somebody who's going through struggle like that so they can intervene, they can encourage them to give up whatever firearms they have while they're going through that sort of mental health situation. Uh, but it didn't seem like he really had that, and nothing was really done, unfortunately, even though the father said he was uh, evil mad, right? Evil angry, yeah. Um... Yeah, that seems like to be a real area where there could be some work done. And I don't know the answers, but when people are really going through a crisis, people see it, people know it, and then they get guns legally and, and do these hor- horrible acts. Stephen, always good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. He launched a political campaign and ended up a political prisoner. Coming up, I'm going to speak with an activist from Nicaragua about his brutal arrest and what comes next. 
It's been one week since that jet carrying 222 newly freed political prisoners from Nicaragua arrived at Dulles Airport outside D.C. Among those on board, journalists, business leaders, a prominent student activist, and several former presidential hopefuls, all of whom had been jailed and called traitors by Nicaragua's police state regime of dictator Daniel Ortega. And we're very lucky that one of those freed captives joins us right now. Felix Maradiaga is an academic and an activist, as well as a former secretary general of Nicaragua's defense ministry. Thank you so much for being here, and we're glad to see you. Um, You were arrested in 2021 while trying to campaign to replace uh, Ortega as president. You were sentenced to 13 years in prison for, quote, conspiracy to undermine national integrity. What was that day like? What was the arrest like? It was very violent. Uh, we knew that something bad was going to happen, but we never imagined that not only the candidates, but journalists, uh, youth leaders, student leaders, uh, in, and even uh, members of the Catholic community were going to be arrested. It was extreme. You told CNN's Christiana Mapur that your prison conditions were designed to break your soul, but they did not succeed. Uh, tell us about that. It's incredible that in 2023, there are places in the world that are precisely designed to isolate uh, people that simply wants to uh, raise their voice for basic uh, human rights. And I can say that none of the, us who were there uh, in a minute thought that they were going to succeed. But it was pretty bleak. It was. Um, your release has been hailed as a victory for U.S. diplomacy. Why do you think you were all freed? Why do you think uh, that Ortega ultimately allowed that to happen? I think that dictators uh, do not release political prisoners because they want to. They do it because uh, they have to. That's their last option they had. In this case, Ortega was no longer outside the radar, as he was for many years. So he received massive international pressure under the U.S. diplomatic leadership uh, that was able to raise many other supports from South America, for example, and the European Parliament together. So it is indeed a victory of U.S. diplomacy. Uh, that shows that a multilateral uh, 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 approach is, is very effective. And this is all contributing, to obviously, to the surge in Nicaraguan migrants fleeing and, and coming uh, to the U.S. Yes, and, and that's a very good point, because uh, Nicaraguans are struggling for democracy because they want to live in Nicaragua. Uh, people that go into exile, they do it because they run out of chances to fulfill a life, to pursue happiness inside their own land. And as much as we're grateful with the U.S. government, with the American people, uh, we want to go back. We want to find a way to go back to Nicaragua. But as you know, we've been stripped from our nationality, which is an extreme uh, measure taken by, 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 by the Ortega regime. Yeah, there, so that you can't come back and run against him in another campaign if you want. I mean, I assume that's one of the reasons. We've been stripped from our nationality, our property, and all basic rights, uh, But we think that this is not only a violation of Nicaraguan law, it's a violation of international law. Some 35 prisoners, including Catholic Bishop Rolando Alvarez, refused the offer to leave Nicaragua. Bishop Alvarez now has been sentenced to more than 26 years in prison and also stripped of his Nicaraguan citizenship. Are you afraid of what might happen to him and the others who stayed behind? I am. I am. I've seen the monster from inside. I've seen what they can do. And it's truly not only inspiring, not as a Catholic myself, but as a, as a Nicaraguan, as a human rights defender, uh, I'm, I'm truly touched by, by what uh, Monsignor Alvarez did. 
And being there, I know one thing. Uh, he needs to know that the world cares. And he needs to know that as long as he's there, Ortega needs to continue to be pressured until he released Monsignor Álvarez and the other political prisoners. Who are the people on the outside Nicaragua that are helping Ortega to continue his reign of terror? Well, Ortega is part of an ecosystem of of dictatorships. Uh, And and that's a point I've been raising with with high government officials, Congress, the White House, that have been very kind in listening to our perspective. Uh, When you see what's happening in Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela... These are not isolated cases. They all work together. Precisely in the tough interrogations, they wanted to know our connections precisely with the United States. So it's important to tackle the Nicaraguan uh, challenge uh, as a a part of a more complicated global problem, which is uh, dictatorships. And do you have family here? Are you okay? Do you have a plan for going forward? Well, my plan right now is to to heal, uh, to spend time with my family, uh, but I'm, I'm d- devoted. My life mission is to see a free and just Nicaragua. Well, Felix, come back because we need to keep shining a spotlight on what Ortega and his cruel dictatorship are doing to the good people of Nicaragua. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me here. I had the concern that led Senator John Fetterman to check him into a ho- check himself into a hospital, plus the heartbreaking Instagram post from the loved ones of Hollywood superstar Bruce Willis that so many Americans sadly, we'll be able to relate to. Stay with us. In our health lead, Democratic Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania announced today that he has checked himself into Walter Reed Medical Center to be treated for clinical depression. According to his office, Fetterman has experienced depression on and off throughout his life, with it becoming more severe in recent weeks. Let's bring in Dr. Megan Ranney. She's Associate Dean of Public Health at Brown University and a professor of emergency medicine. Um, Dr. Randy, thanks for joining us. So Fetterman obviously suffered that stroke last May and continues to deal with lingering auditory processing issues. Is it common for people dealing with these very serious medical issues that that are continuing to also experience depression, at least partly as a result? Absolutely. So it's very normal for people who go through an acute medical illness or an acute trauma to have trouble with coping afterwards. Sometimes people can have symptoms that are similar to post-traumatic stress. Sometimes they can get anxiety or depressive symptoms. People who have a prior history of depression are at highest risk of a relapse of depression after a major medical challenge like a stroke. And We know that Senator Fetterman pushed himself so hard in those weeks after the stroke when in an ideal world he would have been recovering. It is unfortunately not surprising um, that he is experiencing recurring symptoms now. I'm proud of him for recognizing them and getting treatment, um, which not everyone knows to do. Millions of Americans experience depression. Um, Data suggests it affects roughly 10 percent of the population. Most are not hospitalized for it. The fact that he was, does that suggest to you that it's more severe in this case? So it's tough to know. Certainly our politicians in general get a higher level of care than the average American. The truth is most Americans don't get treated for depression or other mental illness in general. More than half of Americans aren't able to access treatment, sometimes because of financial reasons, but as so many of us have experienced over the pandemic, sometimes just because there's no one to provide care. 
So his hospitalization might mean that he's more serious. If I were caring for someone in the emergency department, I would hospitalize them if they were suicidal or if their depression were so severe that they were unable to care for themselves. On the other hand, again, a senator or a representative, there might be a slightly lower bar for hospitalization Mm -hmm. and it might just allow quicker treatment. Uh, Another big story in medical news today, um, family members of Bruce Willis uh, shared that the actor is suffering from frontotemporal dementia. I think it's also called frontal lobe dementia. In in an Instagram post, uh, his loved ones write, quote, unfortunately, challenges with communication are just one symptom of the disease Bruce faces. While this is painful, it is a relief to finally have a clear diagnosis. It, It was just last spring when the family announced he had aphasia, um, I, I should note that this is a profoundly cruel disease that, that my family uh, has experienced. My um, beloved father-in-law, uh, Tom Brown, had it for several years before he died uh, a few uh, weeks ago. Is it common for the disease to, pro- to progress from aphasia to frontal lobe dementia, or was it misdiagnosed earlier? Tough to know for sure. First, my, my condolences on your family's loss. Um, Dementia, as you know, is tremendously common across the United States. Aphasia can be caused by a lot of different things, by strokes, by head injuries, and yes, by dementia. So it may be that the dementia had not progressed enough for it to be able to be diagnosed at that point. They may have thought that it was due to other causes. At the end of the day, there's not a lot of treatment. So although I'm sure it's a relief for the family to have the diagnosis, it hasn't changed his course, most likely, that the diagnosis, if it, if it was delayed, it won't have changed his final outcomes. It's a horrible, horrible, cruel mm. disease, uh, frontotemporal dementia. Dr. Megan Ranney, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up, the toxic threat after this month's train derailment now reaches beyond Ohio's borders. I'm going to speak to the governor of a neighboring state who's calling for independent testing of possibly contaminated water. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, how advancing technology is making it terrifyingly easy to target and harass women online, even putting their faces into porn videos. Plus, Pennsylvania's new governor doing something politicians rarely do, saying he was wrong and changing his position on an important life or death issue. Governor Josh Shapiro will join me live and leading this hour, mounting frustration and fear in the aftermath of that Ohio train derailment. Ohio's governor now wants the CDC to immediately send medical experts to East Palestine, Ohio, to evaluate residents who have suffered from headaches and rashes since the train derailment and that controlled release of all those toxic chemicals. And with rain in the forecast, there are additional concerns that the toxic chemicals that have not been removed yet from the immediate crash site could wash into local waterways. Governor DeWine of Ohio says an emergency response team is working on a containment plan. Our coverage starts today with Jason Carroll, who's in East Palestine, Ohio, where the anger among citizens is understandably only growing. Everybody that came here Frustration, anger, and unanswered questions in East Palestine, Ohio. Are my kids safe? Are the people safe? Is the future of this community safe. The mayor leading the meeting, at times speaking through a bullhorn to answer questions from distressed residents, still worried about returning to their homes, despite evacuation orders being lifted last week. The railroad did us wrong, 
So far they've worked with us and they're fixing it. But if that stops, I will guarantee you I will be the first one in line to fight that. As many residents are demanding more testing of air, water, and soil. We're not going to let them stop the testing until you're satisfied. That's where the testing is not present at this community meeting, Norfolk Southern, the company that owns the train that derailed, sent a statement saying, we have become increasingly concerned about the growing physical threat to our employees. Okay, well, if you're afraid that somebody from Palestine is going to hurt your employees, what exactly did you do to us? It's not just the absence of Norfolk Southern that has some upset. The head of the EPA, Michael Regan, toured the derailment site and met with a resident overcome by what has happened. We need help. We do. We need, we need President Biden. We need FEMA housing. People were getting sick. We, we should not have been let back into town until all of this was done. Regan vowed to stay the course. We will be here for as long as it takes to see this process through. I want to assure the people of No, I just want to say, when you say as long as it takes, I think the question is long-term. We, is someone going to be here a year from now, two years from now, to come back, test the water, test the soil? Uh, I'm, I'm very uh, clear when I say as long as it takes. Uh, we will go through this process with the, with the citizens of East Palestine for as long as it takes. The federal government will be here for as long as it takes. This morning, Ohio's governor spoke with officials at the White House to request more federal assistance, including help from the Department of Health and the CDC. As cleanup continues, results of air quality tests inside 474 homes were released. About 75 initially showed elevated levels of toxins in the air, but further testing showed no contaminants. And Jake, you heard there in the piece, there was talk about where Secretary Buttigieg stands in all this. The Transportation Secretary has been tweeting about the derailment, saying that there will be accountability. He also talked about in his tweets about the need for Congress to get involved and address rail safety. But I think from what we're hearing here on the ground is a lot of folks in the, here in this community would like to have face time with the secretary to address their concerns. Jake. Jason Carroll, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's Bill Weir. Bill, Norfolk Southern, uh, the railway in question, they made billions in profit last year, yet they are handing over a paltry million dollars to the citizens of East Palestine to deal with this uh, crisis. Um, why could the brake system, do you think, have played a key role in what went wrong in East Palestine? Tell us more well, about that. Well, the, the, the train uh, that derailed there and caused this uh, catastrophe is actually using brakes that were designed around the Civil War time. Air brakes that break the train from the front all the way to the back, one at a time. Sometimes on a really long train, it can take two minutes for that signal to reach the back, so it turns into this giant slinky from hell as the back cars slam into the front. Of course, there is an advancement on this in the 21st century. Uh, in the early 2000s, they developed electronically controlled air brakes where the brakes on every car 
fire simultaneously. And they began encouraging industry to do this. Norfolk Southern tried this early on and raved about it as a safety uh, mechanism. Even lobbied transportation officials to say, if we put these brakes on a train, you shouldn't have to inspect it at all. It's that safe. But when Barack Obama tried to make them mandatory in 2014 after a series of derailments, at least for the explosive cars, industry fought it. The chemical industry, the railroad industry, they lobbied it down. They, they fought against speed limits. It did exist on those explosive carcinogen tanker cars until the Trump administration later in 2018 rolled it back altogether. And Bill, tell us more about Norfolk Southern because... They, they were bragging in their press releases about how many billions they made last year, and yet I, I'm really kind of unimpressed by their refusal to show up at the town hall and the, the paltry offerings they've made to the citizens that are suffering from this spill. There's nothing to stop the CEO from joining them via Zoom, Jake. That would be safe if he's afraid of going there. There's nothing to stop him from a live uh, video things like we do all the time now. But yeah, they move a lot of mass to the tune of a $55 billion market cap. But just for perspective... Back in 2015, they crashed a train in South Carolina that killed nine people. They had to treat 851 people. In the end, after fighting with the APA, they paid a $4 million fine and then had to restock the lake with some fish. Yeah, $4 million. That's like change in the sofa at Norfolk Southern. Bill Weir, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. The Palestine train development happened less than a quarter mile from the Ohio-Pennsylvania state line. Uh, Governor Shapiro, you just announced that, that Pennsylvania will be conducting independent water sampling to monitor the possible contamination related to the train derailment. Um, are, are these tests that are already being done, or are these going to be new tests? That's right, Jake. Um, we have been providing uh, the good people of Pennsylvania with the data that we're getting on any air monitoring, and we felt that it was important now to add to whatever's being done at the federal level or whatever Norfolk Southern's doing, our own independent testing of water um, done by our Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. Those tests will begin within a day or two, and we'll be providing all of the readings to the public. We think it's really important to get those tests underway quickly so we can get a baseline reading and then continue to do those tests at regular intervals. So if we see anything concerning, we can notify the public on the Pennsylvania side of the border immediately. You wrote a letter to Alan Shaw, that's the president of uh, Norfolk Southern, in which you outlined a series of mistakes you think the company made in the immediate, immediate aftermath of this crash, including uh, creating an environment of confusion, resulting in a lack of awareness for first responders, giving inaccurate information, and an overall unwillingness to explore alternate courses of action to the proposed vent and burn. Um, is Norfolk Southern cooperating with you at all in the aftermath of this attack? Well, I can tell you, Jake, I think Norfolk Southern's uh, conduct has really been shameful. You know, they load themselves up with lobbyists and lawyers, and then they give the middle finger to the good people of Pennsylvania. They made this process much more difficult than it needed to be. Let me explain specifically. When you're dealing with an emergency situation, Jake, a snowstorm or train derailment, you name it, it's imperative that we create what's known as a unified command structure. 
this was complicated a bit because we were dealing with two states, but I must say that Governor DeWine and our partners in Ohio cooperated greatly and we worked really well together. The hitch in all of this has been Norfolk Southern. They refused to really participate in that unified command, which created extra work. It added confusion. It made it harder for us to get the information out. It wasn't insurmountable, but they were not good stewards, good participants in this process. And they need to be held accountable, not just now with this current situation in East Palestine, Ohio, and the potential effects it could have on Pennsylvania, but they need to be held to a higher account when it comes to federal policy. They, they work with such arrogance, such um, disregard for local communities and local uh, residents. That needs to change, and I hope it does change as a result of this. You did something uh, interesting today uh, that I haven't seen a lot of uh, politicians do. Uh, you changed your mind uh, on an issue. Uh, today you called on the Pennsylvania General Assembly to abolish the death penalty in Pennsylvania, um, Pennsylvania's last execution was carried out in 1999. In 2015, your predecessor, Governor Tom Wolf, announced a moratorium on executions. Uh, here's a clip of you announcing this decision to change your mind on this issue this morning. Two critical truths became clear to me about capital sentencing in our commonwealth. The system is fallible and the outcome is irreversible. I will not sign any execution warrants during my time as governor of the Commonwealth. So you were elected as something of a law and order kind of Democrat. You got the endorsement of a lot of police unions and such. A, are you worried about this decision undermining that at all? And B, why did you change your mind? You know, Jake, this isn't about politics or any particular constituency group. This was a matter of conscience. And candidly, Jake, something I struggled with for quite some time. You know, when I ran for attorney general back in 2016, I was very outspoken um, that I thought the capital punishment system was just. I thought it should be reserved for the most heinous of crimes, but I thought it was a just punishment. As time went on as attorney general and cases came across my desk, I found myself unable to ever seek the death penalty. Um, in a private conversation I had with my then eight, nine-year-old son, he asked me, you know, Dad, how is it that killing someone as a punishment for them killing someone else, how is it that that's okay? And, you know, Jake, I, I couldn't look my kid in the eye and answer that question. And then in 2018, when a murderer went into the synagogue known as Tree of Life. Let me interrupt you right there. Let me inter interrupt um, you. And murdered a let me let, let, let me interrupt because because I want to show the clip that you, sure. I think you're about to refer to because in 2018, right after that horrific Tree of Life synagogue shooting, the deadliest act of anti-Semitism yeah. in the United States history, uh, 11 people killed, uh, six wounded. You were attorney general and you came on the show and you told me that you wanted the death penalty for the shooter. I confess, I've known you for a long time. I confess, I was surprised by your position. Let me just roll that little yeah. clip. The shooter's already facing uh, 29 federal charges, some of which could theoretically be punishable by death. Do you want the feds to seek the death penalty? I do. I think that this is an appropriate case for the feds to do that. So go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you played that clip. I, I referenced that in my remarks today at the church in West Philly where, where I made this announcement. Um, it was after that, and a combination of those cases coming across my desk as AG, my inability to look my own son in the eye and explain my position to him. And then I witnessed the courage and the grace of the families in Pittsburgh um, who had a loved one killed while they worshiped, who said to me, please, please discourage them from pursuing the death penalty. If they could take that position after suffering what they did, then I certainly needed to rethink my position. And I did. I spent a lot of time rethinking. I know uh, a lot of times in politics we get criticized for thinking, rethinking positions, maybe changing their views. But I, I, I must say it, it ultimately came down to what I said in that clip you showed before. Our system is fallible and the outcome is irreversible. And I just fundamentally could not justify as governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that we be in the business of putting people to death. And so it really was a journey for me, in many ways a, a spiritual journey, one inspired by the good people um, in Pittsburgh, by folks I've met along the way, by my own son challenging me on a position um, that I honestly held for many years and realizing that it was not really a just position. I must say, Jake, I didn't stand up in that church today and call on the legislature to fix our capital punishment system. I think it is not fixable. Instead, I ask them respectfully to come to the table, Republican and Democrat, and join me in passing a law in Pennsylvania to abolish the death penalty. Uh, and that is where I stand, and that is what I believe in. And that, to me, is a matter of conscience yeah. and morality. It's two different things, though, right? That one is the idea, the fallibility of the system, which you don't have to convince me of, um, that, that, I mean, I just don't believe that no, that the we've never, as a country, have put an innocent person to death. I just don't believe it. Just knowing how often people, innocent people, go to prison and are later uh, freed because of the Innocence Project and, and and on and on. But you're also saying, like, even if there was a way to guarantee that every single person who faced capital punishment was in fact guilty, uh, undeniably, which is of course impossible. But you're also saying you don't, you still don't believe in it. That's exactly right. I think to me it comes down to an issue of morality and, and the fundamental belief that our commonwealth should not be in the business of putting people to death. And, and listen, Jake, I'm someone as attorney general who have has put people behind bars for the rest of their lives. I believe in stiff sentences. I believe in making sure that um, victims' interests are heard in a courtroom and at sentencing. I believe in making sure we take dangerous people off the streets. I'll take right. a backseat to no one on that. I just don't believe that the Commonwealth should be putting people to death. One last question. Um, you and I went to the same high school, a, a conservative Jewish uh, day school. I'm older than you, uh, so we're not classmates. But um, the death penalty is fine, according to the Old Testament. Uh, there's, there's no problem with the death penalty uh, in, in Judaism. And you, you talk about your faith a lot. You talk about uh, being a, an observant Jew. Uh, a lot. Uh, what you're doing right now, I wouldn't call it contrary uh, to uh, Scripture, um, but it, it, it's not exactly what we're taught uh, in the Bible. Yeah. It's interesting you raise that. In, in many cases, I reflect on my faith, it, not so much on individual cases, but really on something that drives me into service. And in fact, I reflected on my Jewish faith when I was at a Jesuit 
law school, at Georgetown Law School, and wrote a paper about the death penalty and, and actually drew on Jewish law to talk about how there were instances where capital punishment could be carried out. It required a certain number of direct eyewitnesses and a very high evidentiary standard, but it was still allowed. And I thought about that when I contemplated my position on this as I entered public service, and I guess perhaps it did drive my position early on. But as I evolved on this, as I thought about it more, as I reflected on my own conscience, maybe not the literal writings um, in our faith, I just found myself in this position that I announced today where I could not in good conscience as the governor of the Commonwealth ever sign an execution warrant, and instead I'll be signing reprieves. And you also know that eyewitness testimony is pretty much garbage uh, quite often uh, as, as you have risen through the ladder from law school. Not always, but often. It's unreliable. Anyway, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, you've obviously given a lot of thought to this. We appreciate you talking to, about, to us about it. Uh, and thanks so much. Thank you, Jake. Russia gives Ukraine a preview of its new offensive with a massive missile attack. What this means as we approach one year since the start of the invasion. Then Tesla announces a major recall over an alarming safety risk. Stick around. Topping our world lead now with just eight days until the one year mark of Putin's brutal illegal invasion of Ukraine. Russia launched a, quote, massive missile attack overnight, at least 36 missiles, according to Ukrainian officials. One Russian strike demolished an older couple's house in the eastern city of Plavorod. Local official described the husband and wife as quiet and friendly. They said they liked to grow grapes. The 79-year-old woman died on the spot. Let's bring in CNN's David McKenzie and Key for us. David, do officials there think this type of assault is going to continue every day until and beyond the one-year mark? Yes, I think the short answer is they do think that, Jake. There's been this uh, strike of missiles overnight. Most of those, at least half of them, taken down by air defenses here in Ukraine. You saw those horrible pictures from east of where I'm standing of civilian areas, areas destroyed by those missiles. There's also been... Very fierce fighting around Bakhmut in the eastern zone of this fight. A Ukrainian official saying that they are fighting hard there, digging in, that the Russians are getting resupplied in that area frequently because of the rate of attacks. President Zelensky tonight saying that they have to withstand this fight, this uh, pressure they're feeling before this anniversary, and then possibly fight back. Jake? David, we're also hearing there was a significant prisoner swap today. This is a bit of good news. You see these images of 101 prisoners, 100 soldiers, one civilian. It speaks to just how long this has been going on. The civilian was the deputy mayor from an area south of where I'm standing. He's been in custody, well, as a prisoner of war for more than 330 days. This will be seen as a win for Ukraine, but there are many more uh, POWs in Russian hands right now as people wait and anticipate to see if those probing attacks from the Russians will break through those front lines, particularly in the east of this uh, fighting, which is very, very fierce indeed. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Coming up, President Biden just had his physical, what we know about the hospital visit and the one number that the president reportedly hates discussing. Stay with us.
President Biden back from Walter Reed Medical Center after undergoing a routine physical earlier today. His second one since becoming president. I think it's his first since turning 80, though. CNN's Phil Mattingly is live for us at the White House. Phil, because of the president's age, which we're supposed to, he's very sensitive about it, um, a lot of attention is, is placed on his medical visits. You have some new reporting about how sensitive he is whenever his age, which is 80, is mentioned. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, when you talk to advisors, they acknowledge it's an obvious reality one the president is very aware of. He's the one who wakes up every morning at the age of 80. And yet part of the reason there's a level of sensitivity there is because they believe and he believes so much has been accomplished in these last two years. He's been able to get most of his agenda passed. He's been able to move things through Congress, deal with COVID, work on a different foreign policy than his predecessor had. And perhaps that's diminished by discussion about whether or not he's too old either to serve her office or to run again. Now, we got just a few moments ago, got the results, a memo from the president's physician related to that visit to Walter Reed, that first physical, as you noted, Jake, since the end of 2021. And those results say President Biden remains, quote, healthy and vigorous. Uh, it also says that he is fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency. So a good news report for the president. There's no signs it would be anything other than that. But when you talk about a president and a team preparing to announce a reelection campaign, which they very much are behind the scenes, What's interesting is the point that they believe, while they understand there is a perception related to his age, they see the polling about people maybe not wanting him to run again because of his age, they don't believe it's a reflection of who he is behind the scenes. As one advisor uh, told Isaac Devere and I as we were reporting this out, it's part of who he is, as much a part of his, as his legis- record legislative accomplishments in the last two years, as much a part of his empathy and his connection with people. They believe that when it comes down to it, when he runs for re-election, it'll be a choice, not something about his age. Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Let us discuss this. Uh, Margaret, let me start with you. So Biden's doctor may have given him a clean bill of health. By the way, has a White House physician ever (laughs) given whatever the president I mean, ever in the history of White House physicians? I'm sure George Washington's doctor was was great teeth, (laughs) perfect teeth. Anyway, um, but this doesn't put to bed the questions about the fact that he's 80 years old. Uh, uh, Phil Mattingly and Edward, uh, Edward Isaac DeVere write, quote, while top White House aides bristle at any suggestion, that the president's age is a liability. Others in the building quietly worry that this may be actively underplaying the concerns that they're hearing from their own friends and family members. Yep. You know, so, you know, it's interesting, Margo. It used to be whenever you brought this up with the president, he'd say, watch me, watch me. Right. When I interviewed him last uh, October, he didn't say that. He said something like, but look at my record. Right. You know what I mean? It was a different answer. Uh, and that's because perceptions matter. And part of the reason I think the White House is sensitive to this is because the coverage and the online coverage also matter. Um, I'm going to give you a preview, but save the details so you can read it yourself tonight. Axios uh, does a monthly focus group with swing voters. Uh, These are people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, The latest one was out of Michigan. Uh, The story will be tonight. This is Alexi McCammon's uh, uh, focus group that she watches each month. These are 13 swing voters. Mm -hmm. Uh, 13 of 13 said they would like Biden to face a primary challenger. And their primary reason was concerns around his age. And many of them say that he gives them kind of a frail vibe. Now, it's 13 people. Focus groups can become leading if one person convinces the others. It's not a poll. It's not scientifically, you know, important. But it gives you some nuance about the conversations that are going on and how people feel And and there are a couple other things about this focus group that really stood out to me. One is that 
No one had any clear alternative on the Democratic side. It's not like those 13 people were like... In Michigan, they weren't thinking of Gretchen Whitmer. They were not thinking of Gretchen Whitmer. The only person who could name anyone was someone said Cory Booker. I don't even know where that came from. But like, (laughs) um, so there is not a groundswell for alternative X. And that, you know, I guess helps Biden on the, the primary side, on the theoretical general election side, the concern was that uh, when they were sort of describing their someone who they would leave Biden for in a general election, yeah. they liked the idea of a white male governor who's a Republican and non-controversial. Tell me who that person is, and we could do a new I, yeah, I mean, I had an answer for you, too. You said non-controversial. Uh, I would have said uh, Ron DeSantis, but he's, he can be controversial, yeah, although not in Florida. Just, yeah. thir- that 13 out of 13 people don't understand politics. That much I can say. Because 13 people who think that it would be good for the Democratic Party or Joe Biden to have a primary right. <laughs> don't understand how it works. That, that, that is a recipe for losing. Like, so if so, maybe if these are people that don't care about that and they're totally fine with Donald Trump becoming president or Ron DeSantis becoming president, then it's a great idea. And I think, Margaret, you hit on like probably the most important point, which is they don't have an idea of anybody other person. And so what are what are people doing? What are Democrats doing in particular talking, not talking, but talking like we're so afraid to talk about it, but we're going to talk to every reporter we know. Uh, about a little more than half half are. But then the others are independents. There's only a couple Republicans here. And it's not about strategy. It's just about what's your gut feeling. You you embrace Biden, you know, in 2020. Would you embrace him But what I'm saying is they don't, I don't mean it even as a criticism. They're not supposed to understand necessarily the ins and outs of primaries. The point is, if they understood what that meant, you know, that that is almost handing it to a Ron DeSantis. And maybe they support Ron DeSantis. Except Ron DeSantis you know, is not a guaranteed Republican. Right. Well, I'm just saying He's, whoever the Republican is, right. it's like having a primary for Biden would leave him either extremely bloodied, you know, um, or somebody maybe would win also extremely bloodied and not with incumbency. So, and, but, but Doug, uh, I think Donald Trump is 77. Yes. I believe he's 76, going to be 77. Going to be 77. So he's not exactly, you know, a a, a fresh, fresh daisy either. Um, And listen to Nikki Haley. Well, I don't have the clip, actually. Uh, I lied. But but um, (laughs) Nikki Haley in her speech announcing, I assume jokingly suggested that politicians over the age of 75 uh, need to have a mental competency test. Now, I'm sure her people will say, oh, that was aimed at Joe Biden. But come on. That was also aimed at Donald Trump. When, when you're talking about generational change, it's very clear that you're talking about more than one person at a time. And there are, there are two big dogs at this point. There's Donald Trump on the Republican side and Joe Biden on the Democratic side. People can hear what they want to hear. Um, but very clearly, uh, the Trump people are aware of this. They know what she's saying. They know how she's saying it. And it's going to be interesting to see if Donald Trump can continue, continue to hold back a little bit as these criticisms are being veiled. Because if she takes that one or two steps further and actually calls out Donald Trump, we know what he's capable of. It starts with nicknames, and it ends up in really bad places for whoever challenges him. And, and Nick, I mean, I would say that those who question Donald Trump's fitness are looking at different characteristics than those who question Joe Biden's fitness, but both of them could be related to age. Right, and what I find interesting about this whole conversation, and as, as someone who covers Capitol Hill every day, is how the age conversation plays over there, too. It's really not a chamber of the government that's, that's known for being particularly young or sprightly. And Democrats over there just went through a huge generational change of their own. The trio of Hoyer, uh, Pelosi, and Clyburn passed torches on to a generation that was decades younger. At the same time, 
they're not willing to say that they want to pass the torch at the top of the ticket either, right? Democrats that I've talked to you know, are saying that they value the amount of institutional knowledge uh, over there, whereas Republicans, you know, that conversation's starting to shift a bit. Although, I mean, what's related to that, uh, Margaret, is uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, yeah. uh, Democrat of California, who yesterday or the day before announced that she is not going to seek re-election. Uh, she is old, but in addition to old, she has had serious memory problems for years that have been covered in The New Yorker. They've been yes. covered all over the place. She hasn't done a live TV interview in a long, long time, or any, even a tape TV interview in a long, long time. And just having you formerly been a, a, a Capitol Hill reporter, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Strom Thurmond wandering the halls, mm-hmm. and he clearly was not necessarily 100% aware where he was at any given time. Yeah. Yes, although, I, you know, I think there's two things. Number one, uh, when you're a senator, right, you're one of 100 that's different than being the president. Uh, so I think a different level of scrutiny is placed on a senator. Those are, uh, but on the other hand, I think it's a real. Pro- it has has been a real problem. Something the Democrats have been talking about. The other thing uh, that we're seeing, and we're seeing it now, not in politics, but in pop culture, with uh, the sad news about Bruce Willis today, is you don't have to be 90 years old yeah. to be going through memory problems or dementia. Uh, and I think a, a competency test at 75. Why not make it a competency test at 35? Uh, there are plenty yeah. of yeah. plenty of older people who are uh, have a lot of mental acuity. Plenty of younger people who are either dealing with temporal problems or it's not about dementia. They just uh, you know, and that's up to voters whether they have the skills to hold the office. I, the, the issue that I have with this conversation about Biden's age is that it's always just about his age. It's not really about. Oh, he wasn't able to do X. He wasn't able to do Y. He, he has a great record, right? And, and even the Democrats who are talking about his age would say, he has a good record. He's done a lot of great things. So it's like it, it, being 80 is not a disqualifier. Being any age and not having the mental competency to be president is a disqualifier. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, the world's best-selling author lets police officers tell Their stories, the good, the bad, the ugly. James Patterson will join me live. Stay with us. In our national lead, another family's grief after police shot and killed their loved one, this time in Shreveport, Louisiana, where 43-year-old Alonzo Bagley died 13 days ago. Police say they were responding to a domestic disturbance. Bagley jumped from a second-floor balcony and ran. He came around a corner and was shot in the chest by Officer Alexander Tyler. Police say they did not find any weapons on Bagley. This was not Bagley's first run-in with Shreveport Police. In 2018, he filed a federal lawsuit against the department, accusing them of punching him in the face while he was handcuffed. CNN's Ryan Young has been following the story in Shreveport, Louisiana. And Ryan, you just spoke with the family? Yeah, we spoke with the family, we spoke with the mayor, we even spoke with the police chief. Um, Look, we got details about this, Jake, maybe uh, a few days ago when someone called a source and said we needed to see this video. The video was finally released. The LSP has been the lead of this investigation. After this police-involved shooting, the state investigation took over because they wanted to make sure this went the right way. And I can tell you people have been on edge in the city because obviously Mr. Bagley was unarmed. In a video that we can't show you just yet because we are redacting parts of it because it is very graphic, you can see when the officers arrive, there's a discussion, and then Mr. Bagley jumps from a second-story balcony, and then there's a foot pursuit. Well, what we've noticed in this video is that Officer Tyler had his weapon drawn, and at some point they meet uh, when the two kind of almost bump into each other and the officer opens fire. It's one single shot, 
And I can tell you with the video, there's a lot of discussion about where the hands were of Mr. Bagley. His hands were empty. Were they up? Were they down? That's been a part of the discussion. But for this family, they've obviously been torn to pieces. Take a listen to Mr. Bagley's brother. I'm looking at Alexandra Tyler like, dude, why is your gun drawn in the first place? Why you feel so threatening in the first place about this? He could have he could have wrestled him down. He could have, you know, yelled anything. But you chose to take my brother life. Jake, a lot of pain here. One of the things that stood out to this family, though, is the mayor didn't apologize or didn't call for the first few days. The mayor actually apologized for that just a short time ago. Jake. And Ryan, it, it was announced today that the officer who shot and killed Bagley has been arrested and charged with a negligent homicide. Tell us more about that. Yeah, we also got a heads up about that, too, Jake. So yesterday we went to the officer's house and we had a short conversation with him. He told us his attorney would be talking for him. And today the attorney basically laid out the fact that he doesn't believe that this is negligible homicide. He believes that he was running behind Mr. Bagley. You can't see what was clearly in his hands. Obviously, he's trying to uh, fight for his client. This officer was in court today, and actually he was in the jail, and they did a video conference, and he was in an orange jumpsuit. But take a listen to the lawyer right now talk about just why he believes his client should eventually beat these charges. The, the mere fact that uh, an argument is being made by the investigator in court that he was unarmed does not necessarily mean he's not a threat to the officer. Uh, there's not a requirement that every suspect has a weapon. Jake, so much has happened here. You had LSP put this out. You had them arrest this man. You had the mayor come out and basically apologize to the family. You had the entire city council here. Obviously, the city is worried with the rising crime rate that is experiencing how they move forward as a city. All right, Ryan Young in Shreveport, Louisiana, thank you so much. As we continue to cover police shootings and put a spotlight on disturbing, power-driven demeanor, some officers exercise when they put on their badge. Best-selling author James Patterson and co-author Matt Eversman want to remind us that there are a lot of really good, selfless law enforcement officers out there as well. In their newly released book, Walk the Blue Line, they tell some of those stories. And joining us now to discuss is James uh, Patterson. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, James. Really appreciate it. Um, hey, yeah. So, I mean, at a time when there is so much coverage of uh, bad police behavior, why did you and Eversman think it was important to write about the heroic police officers as well? That, that isn't, I don't think that's what the book is about, honestly. Mm. I had a, a sleepless night last night, especially between 3.30 and 5.30, worrying that I would not be able to communicate the importance of this book in five minutes. And this is the truth about cops. And it's not about good cops. It's about good cops and bad cops and, um, and, and just how difficult it is. If you read this book, in my opinion, you will understand Memphis a whole lot better. You will understand Minneapolis. I don't know about Shreveport because, you know, one of the things with, with cops is uh, if you compare it to the military, uh, Mogadishu or Kabul or Baghdad, nobody blames the soldiers for that, for the, for the problems in those cities. 
And, 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 and so many people, they're going to blame Chicago on the police. That's just not accurate. If you read this book, you will just see how difficult it is, how it weighs on cops. But there are there are there are cops that are cowboys in this book. And, and, and the one thing mm -hmm. about, about 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 good cops is nobody hates bad cops more than good cops. We taught we had 7000 pages of interviews and uh, over 150 cops that we talked to. And not one of them had anything but negative things to say about right. the guy and, in, in Minneapolis. And let me let me read everybody. An, uh, every single one of them said, you know, I got no time for that guy. Let me read an officer's excerpt from the book where he talks about crooked cops. He mm -hmm. says the truth is the vast majority of us go about our jobs honestly. But dirty cops exist and they are worse than the people we throw in jail. And, and that's the point that you were just making. Uh, many people, yeah. uh, especially those in black and brown communities, feel targeted by police, view them as corrupt. Um, but uh, but no one hates bad cops more than good cops. Yeah. But but the other piece of it is is people don't realize how dangerous it is even with the Shreveport thing. And I have no idea. I don't know Shreveport. I don't know you know whether they have right, a of lot course. of trouble there or not. But we did a ride along with the, with the, with the sheriff at one point. I've done a bunch of ride alongs. But one of the things that the sheriff said, he said that in that past year they had a million two hundred thousand cries for help just in that county. And that's a, there's a lot of mistakes that can happen when you got a million two hundred thousand. You just don't know what you go to somebody's house. You don't know what's going to happen. You have to pull over a car that's you know, you know somebody's driving erratically. You don't know what's going to happen. And and one of the things that they do as civilians in in the county is they'll bring them in in those things where you have to in two or three seconds decide whether you're going to shoot or not. Everybody who does that goes, oh, my God, now I understand how difficult yeah. that is. It's an incredible And I think it would be great yeah. for people in the media. Go do that, man. Uh, and suddenly you go like, OK, I'm beginning to understand this. People will understand cops. if And p people think they do, but they don't. You read this book, you really, really, really understand. Uh, and it, But it, once again, it's not a defense of them. It's just laying it all out there. Right. You all make your own judgments on what you think of cops. And another story in, in the book touches on the stigma that officers sometimes face or feel when struggling with mental health. There's an officer from Louisiana, you quote, yeah. saying, if I seek out a different resource like a therapist, I'm going to have to pay for it out of pocket and keep it a secret. Another yeah. burden I'll have to carry. Is this, is this an, if, an, uh, an issue a lot of officers talk it's about? It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. And the, the military's done a, a decent job, especially with veterans dealing with PTSD, and not, not with police and not with teachers either. Uh, uh, it just needs to get dealt with. It needs to get out in the open. You know, Matt uh, Eversman, who's an Army Ranger, my partner in this, and, you know, when you get deployed, you have time off. You, you know, cops from the beginning, from when they get in, they have no time. They're not deployed. They don't get rest time. They don't. It's just a constant day after day after day. And that needs to be dealt with if, if the police are going to get better and better. And, 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 and most cops want to get better. They yep. want reform. They want change. They want to do their jobs as well as they can. Again, they want to protect and serve most of them. The book is Walk the Blue Line. They Walk the Line Between Life and Death by James Patterson and Matt Eversman. Uh, James Patterson, thanks so much for joining us. Always uh, good oh, thank to you. see you. Thank you. The book is out now, uh, and uh, I appreciate it. Coming up, the dark and hidden dangers of new technology, how women are unknowingly being used in deep fake porn videos. Stay with us. Our tech lead now, you might have heard about deep fakes, the hyper-realistic but false videos made with the help of artificial intelligence. They could be harmless and silly. Here's one of Tom Cruise, though not really Tom Cruise, tripping in a shoe store. Or they could be used for something far more nefarious, such as 
targeting, harassing, and abusing women. CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan talks to one woman who was horrified to find that her face had been replicated into pornographic videos. It's very, very surreal to watch yourself do something you've never done. Streamer Suisse Anita has almost 2 million followers on Twitch, where she plays video games and openly talks about having Tourette's syndrome. I uh, tend to say something inappropriate that I don't mean to and I'm not thinking. She was horrified when she found out her face was being used in so-called deep fake porn. Well, I watched some of one of them, like, a few seconds, and I was like, no, I can't do this. I can't watch through all of these. Like, this is too much. It's often hardcore pornography, but it's also usually degrading or aggressive sex acts. It's um, it's extremely traumatic when this kind of thing happens. Samantha Cole was one of the first people to report on deepfakes. Deepfakes actually comes from the username of someone on Reddit who was taking people's faces and putting them on porn performers' bodies using AI algorithms. It's so hyper-realistic, it's genuinely scary. Deepfakes are made using artificial intelligence technology. These days there are apps on your phone, you can go to and upload either a single image and AI technology will re-render that image with the person without their clothes. When deepfakes first came on the scene around 2017, there was concern they would be used to make it look like politicians said or did something they didn't do, like this deepfake demonstration of former President Obama. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. But so far, this technology has primarily been used against women. From the very beginning, the person who created deepfakes was using it to make pornography of women without their consent. First, the focus was on female celebrities. And that's kind of how it spread and how it became huge, because everyone wanted to see uh, basically a fake sex tape of their favorite celebrity. But now it's moved beyond movie stars. There are people who just want to see someone be humiliated that they personally know, and that's a market for it. So this could just float around and be found by your students if you teach, or like some patients if you're a nurse or a doctor. Like, this can affect your standing. They're using women's images as if they're, you know, stock images of fruits. That's how, like, detached they are from the reality of there are people behind these pictures. For the people who create this, I feel like a lot of them dehumanize us and don't actually realize we're real people who live in the consequences. Some lawmakers have sought to crack down on non-consensual deepfake porn, but AI is developing at breakneck speed. We haven't even solved the problems of the technology sector from 10, 20 years ago. And this field is moving much, much faster than the original technology revolution. This is an issue that goes beyond the halls of Congress and Silicon Valley. I don't know what the actual solution is other than getting to that fundamental problem of disrespect and non-consent. I want to push for a world where there are more consequences for the perpetrator than for the victim. No one knows him. He created this and he created all these consequences for all of these women. And now he's just poof, gone. No one knows. And our thanks to Denny O'Sullivan for that report. Our coverage continues next with Pamela Brown in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.